Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Dr. Dan Engel. And because we live in the culture that we live in, I have to read a disclaimer because even though he is a doctor, this is not medical advice. So by the force of law and to the complete resistance that every part of me has, I have to read these words to you. All right, so this is actually my second time reading this, and Graham actually had a really good point that out of respect for Dr. Dan, I should read this medical disclaimer without allowing my immaturity to bleed into it. There's something in me that deeply resists um, feeling like I have to read the words that other people have written. Um, But I respect Dr. Dan immensely, and I understand the situation he's in. So here is the medical disclaimer that... uh, legally needs to be said in order for him to be able to do the podcast and talk the way that he does because I'm feeling into it now. Um, He's incredibly brave for coming on my podcast and having the type of conversation that he did. And I owe it to him to read this without basically bitching during it. So uh, if you guys can give me about 45 seconds, here's the medical disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and it does not constitute the practice of medical or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendations, diagnosis, or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion and is not an endorsement of use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and that the current variable widespread illegality of their usage, AKA he's not giving you direct medical advice. I can feel the reason why I have so much resistance to reading that is because of how much I actually trust you, the listener. And I trust that each of you are emotionally mature enough to recognize this is a human talking on a podcast and not your doctor in your office giving you medical advice. And these medicines are illegal. so. Um, with that said, and thank you very much, Graham, for calling me out when I was tired and hungry and bitching during reading a medical disclaimer. Dr. Dan Engel is one of the most intelligent humans I've ever met. He is one of the most epic stories that I've ever heard. And he's an inspiration because he went deep into the current model that I am both fascinated by and inspired to try to reform. And he also went deep into the medicine path and now he's merged the two worlds. And he has a institute opening up here in Austin um, tentatively and hopefully by October 16th. Is that right, Graham? October 18th. And it's called the Kuya Institute for Transformational Medicine. And it's right down the road from the office at Onnit that I use for the podcast sometime. And it is the most beautiful quote unquote, mental health and physical health facility I have ever seen in my life. When it is open, I'm going to be there every day. And he is one of the most impeccable human beings I've ever met. So deep shout out to Kuya. And it should be live and open and ready to receive October 18th, 2021. You're probably going to see me there. Also, he has a book that came out a little while ago called A Dose of Hope a story of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. We'll get into the details on the podcast, but I find that 
MDMA assisted psychotherapy is one of the greatest tools that we can use to begin the very long process of facing the truth of the hurt and the trauma and the grief that we have faced that we've either ignored or suppressed or coped with to the point of being blind to it and ungrieved trauma is the essence of the myths that make us in the sense of whatever stories you created in response to not feeling the grief fully can run your life. And this is a great way, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, to begin to face that. As always, if you want to support the podcast, hop on the newsletter at erigazzi.com. And if you love this episode and you think it's going to help, share it with somebody. I really respect and um, appreciate that you guys offer your attention to these podcasts. And I love you so much. Thank you and enjoy. So I'm going to give more of his story in the intro because I want to maximize the amount of time that we have with him on the podcast today. But um, Dr. Dan, you are one of the most, um, the best phrase I have is turned on humans that I've ever met, I, I find that there's something about people's eyes that reflect almost like what percentage of their nervous system is activated and not in like a traumatized way, but in a, like how much of it is being recruited in this present moment. Mm. And I remember the first time I met you, I was like, all right, there's a new standard now mm-hmm. for, for what can be happening. And I learned a little bit about your story, but we'll get more into it. I don't know the details, but something brought you to the jungle for an extended amount of time with a amount of ayahuasca drinking that I just, it's hard for me to even comprehend. And then the amount of time that you took to integrate from that. And then you decided to bring it all back to the machine. And you were talking about this before the podcast, but there was a part of you a long time ago that just wanted a backpack and a truck and the country. And now you're in the middle of the middle of the middle of uh, the thing that if not corrected is going to eat the planet. Mm. And I appreciate you coming back. (laughs) You know, we need brothers and warriors and allies. And I Mm. see that with you. So first, thank you for coming back. And then the first question is, what's your first memory? Hmm. Thanks for that kind intro. Uh, good to be back. There's still a longing to go back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I know this is where the, the real work happens, just like in ceremony, right? A lot, of hap- a lot happens in the ceremony, a lot happens in the experience, but the real work happens in the integration. So that whole time for me down in the jungle was one long ceremony. And then the coming back and finding my feet gradually more (laughs) firmly on the ground uh, was the integration process. And in regards to my first memory, uh, you know, this is interesting. There's a flood of different memories. So I don't know exactly which one is the first. I've had half a dozen pretty significant concussions. And in the midst of those healing, I didn't necessarily recruit an improved retrospective memory. So a lot of my early interesting, yeah. 
I don't have a whole lot of memories prior to senior year of high school. Wow. Which was one of the more impactful years of just getting my knock, my head knocked around quite a bit. Was it sport-wise? Yeah. Skateboarding uh, and two in soccer all in the same year, getting knocked out and, and being pretty uh, dazed with post-concussive syndrome after that. So I was to talk about my first, I remember uh, being in my front yard uh, with my dog at the time. And um, I was playing around in the blue bonnet field. Uh, so must've been like summertime-ish. And a guy was riding by on his bike and he had his little girl, I think it was, um, in one of those little cradles in the, you know, on the back seat, kind of a two-seater bike or, or, or one of those little carriages that would, let her sit right behind him, however it worked. Um, and then as he was riding by, my dog went to go kind of say hi. Uh, it wasn't in a, like, I don't remember it being aggressive, but he kind of freaked out, crashed the bike. The little girl went tumbling and he just lost it. And I remember not seeing that dog again. Because I think how the story went is he called the animal protection people or even child protective services or I don't know who he called, but he called in the militia and the dog was gone after that. And um, wow. so it's interesting. And I haven't thought about that in a long time. And, you know, it's not a very common question for people to ask me what my <laughs> first memory is. Uh, so I had to kind of like replay that whole story kind of through. Uh, and I must have been, you know, pretty young. I think at probably that point, like maybe six, seven, eight, something like that. What's the primary emotional valence associated with that memory? Because at first, like, it was really painting a picture of, like, beauty. And then, yeah. whoa. Yeah. So I'm curious, what's... Because my understanding of memory is that the file that opens it is actually emotion. And the type of emotion you're in, you know, changes it a little bit. But some stick. I'm curious yeah. what the emotion is. Yeah, it can be emotion. Um, it can be a state. Like a physiological. Like a physiologic state that would typically be tied to an emotion. Uh, it can be a, a trigger, like something recognized. Mm. Like, oh, there's something here familiar about this place. Um, it can be a process, kind of like state-dependent learning. So if you learn something within a process and you put yourself back in the process, then it can bring that data back. Okay. Uh, and in this regard... Um, there's not a whole lot of emotion. I don't, uh, of the memories that I do have prior to high school. Yeah. Uh, I don't have many, me uh, like emotion. It's more like just pictures and kind of like neutrality. Like, wow. yeah. like, uh, uh, you know, an evidence-based scene observation. Right. Um, if I was to gradually put myself into the experience of it, I might recreate an emotional experience that might be more related to the present wow. now than it was that back then. That's great back, awareness, yeah. Back then I could imagine like it was kind of freaky, kind of confusing. Like, why are you freaking out my dog? I mean, I love my dog, you know, particularly <laughs> at that age. Like my dog's like my little companion. Yeah. Um, my current self-interpretation of being all of a sudden without my best companion would be be like a longing and 
I might create a story of how that was hard for that little dude at that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And that could have been it. <laughs> but, you know, mom might have got me a pet. I think I actually, now that we talk about it, I started uh, the, the association or, or like the next memory slew is having rabbits. Wow. We had rabbits in my backyard and rabbits, there's a reason that they talk about rabbits multiplying like rabbits. So mm -hmm. we had a couple of rabbits that turned very quickly into a whole truckload of rabbits. Yeah. And then I started caring for rabbits. And so like there, it, it could have been just kind of like easy on that little dude. But the <laughs> yeah. association that I have is like, you know, he had such a hard time and right. that's when my life went to shit. And that's when I started developing X, Y, and Z kind of like neuroses back then. And I don't even know if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we tell ourselves stories uh, about the past that might not be true about the past or even our current interpretation of that past. It's more like the opportunity to recognize that the entire myth that makes us is a recurring experience of being able to tell a new story. Love it. Crushed it. Best answer to that one so far. Um, what do you remember being the first movie or book or like story that maybe you were told going to bed that like stuck with you because one of the things I've observed is children tend to and I'm like four like they tend to find a movie or a book where it's like I play this movie every day or I ask mom to read this book every day um, I'm curious what's the story that really felt like it was impactful for you when you were a child and I recognize that you might not have memories before like the concussion. And so if that's the case, then around the time in high school, like what mm -hmm. was the most powerful story for you? Yes, it's great. Uh, I'm, I'm having recalls of things that, you know, are, are usually not in my current um, average daily conversation. The two movies that come to mind, one is The Secret of Nim. I don't know that one. Cartoon movie about a bunch of rats that live in this bush in a farmhouse. And Nim, spelled N-I-M-H, Right, so these were rats from the National Institutes of Mental Health. <laughs> <laughs> and I became a psychiatrist later. I mean, how fucking funny is that? Right. Rats oh, from I the, love that. From the NIMH. And was that on purpose? Uh, no. Oh, well, the, yeah, the, the title yeah, yeah, of yeah. that was on purpose. That's because hilarious. these rats were uh, going through some kind of experiment of accelerating their intelligence. Wow. And then one really <laughs> smart rat figured out how to get out. And that rat, you know, set up this whole like little organizational colony outside once they escaped. Oh man, this, I love it. And it, it was the first movie that was so intriguing about the animate world, mm. which is a little bit different than like Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry, because those are stories and cartoons and have flashy, you know, flick rates and, yeah. and narratives that keep you engaged and dialogues and super natural interspecies communication. So there's a lot of things that could have drawn my energy and attention, but there was something about the way that story was told because there was magic woven in and mysticism and these like supernatural abilities that these little rats had in this particular community. And then there was like the dark evil rats and the light good rats. And like, it was like the microcosm within the macrocosm of life on planet earth. Yeah. And I remember I would watch that movie like on replay quite wow. a bit. So that was one. And then the second one was Grease 2, right? <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer, super fucking hot. I watched her a lot. 
<laughs> Very different movies, but yeah. those are the first two that come to memory. <laughs> All right. So what I love, and I'm going to lift the hood underneath why I ask these questions and who better to lift the hood with because I'd love to get your feedback. Like the hypothesis of the question and the way that you laid out at the beginning of describing that uh, it's a rat that breaks out, that's super intelligent, that goes and creates a new organizational structure after it breaks out. Like uh, that's your story um, on one level. But there's this idea that I have that, um, are you familiar with the Greek idea of the daemon? Mm-hmm. The myth of Ur, which is the um, story that Plato puts at the end of the Republic, that is this myth of essentially, we choose our fates before we come here. Uh, in order to come into a body, are the weight of our fates too heavy? So we have to drink from the river of forgetting. But we're given a companion that can't be embodied, but will come with us that remembers our fate. And it's our guardian angel and it's our daemon. And that then we enter into a body having forgot, but we have that voice. And that one of my intuitions is one of the ways that that voice speaks to you is by what captures your attention when you're a child, when you're unobstructed. Mm. And that when we find the story in our current cultural context that most maps with the fate that we're going to live out, our daemon's like, mm -hmm. grabs it. Mm -hmm. And I've asked this question to probably over 150 people and without missing a beat. Um, the joy I got from hearing how you described like the hero of that story, at least from my perspective, maps on really nicely to like your hero's journey. And I want to offer the caveat that I'm highly skeptical of books where there's a psycho there where there's a psychotherapist who uses like hypnotism or something on their patients, and then all their patients have the same story. Mm -hmm. And a part of my intuition is that if you get your patient in the right enough like state of consciousness, they might actually pull your story out for you because there's a bunch of different psychotherapists who have written different books where they've hypnotized their patient and got like, you know, stories of metaphysical things that all agree. Mm. But the different psychotherapists all have different stories, but mm. all their patients agree. So I want to offer the, the caveat that maybe I'm priming without realizing that I'm priming. Mm. But I would just love to get, I don't think I've ever articulated that on the podcast, mm. but this feels like this is the right time to do that and just to see what you think mm -hmm. and if it resonates. Mm -hmm. It resonates with me. Uh, and I'm thinking about the variety of ways that we're speaking about soul. And I also agree that we come in with a particular mission, directive, yeah. or at least life lesson that we're oriented towards. When I think of soul, I think of the three different characteristics or the three um, templates that our soul expression might be connected to. One template being what it's coming in with and from, like our imprints, whether that's multi-dimensional reality, whether that's past or current experiences of life trajectory and embodiment, whether karma, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So what we come in with, what we come in as, so like our characteristic, our constitution, our personality. Uh, like if you have 
if you have twins born essentially at the same time, same parents, same environment, same rearing, same, all of the external environmental is pretty similar, but their personalities and characteristics are totally different, right? So we have this, this personality construct that's unique to each of us. And then we have this third arena, which is our calling or our dharma, like what we've come in to do and be a part of. And when we can look at the varying um, intricacies and individualities of each of those, but particularly our character and our calling, and that's the title of a book. I think it's James Hillman. Big fan of James Hillman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and from that place of coming in with a particular orientation, what we're drawn to do, um, it's, it just makes sense. When I've, I've studied a fair number of different spiritual traditions and um, orientations towards consciousness, and it just makes the most sense that we have something that is longing to be expressed in yeah. this lifetime. And that this one lifetime is not the extent of our soul expression. Mm. That it very well may be that the experience and the existence of the soul has just one day that is this entire lifetime. And that when we go to sleep, i.e. let go of this monkey suit, then we might just go back into soul-level intelligence, soul-level communion. Our soul may continue to evolve outside of a body, and it may choose to come into a body again. And then we'd wake up in another monkey suit, and then we have that lifehood, and then shed that at the end of the night or the, you know, that time to sleep, and then go back. So the microcosm within the macrocosm, and it's really the only thing that makes sense to me. Uh, I almost quit medicine at one point. Um, it was during my pediatrics rotation. I was doing a uh, rotation in the NICU, the neonatal ICU. And I thought I was going to go into pediatrics. And so I was really oriented towards that. And I, really, I, and I was also pretty oriented towards interventional medicine at the time. And man, in the NICU, geez, you just saw little ones come in thrashed, dead, you know, dead or dying or close to death. And just it called into question everything that I thought about life. Like who's the grand puppet master that is orchestrating this one and to whose benefit and to why. Um, so it's thin, it sent me into a bit of an existential crisis for a little while. And thankfully I had a supervising physician at the time that um, oriented me towards what would be now described as transpersonal psychology. Mm -hmm. And she just started priming my inquiry around that uh, that dialogue of life after life, so to speak. And I came across Brian Weiss's um, Many Lives and Many Masters. He was the head of psychiatry at Mount Sinai. He was using hypnotherapy. And I'd, I'd been already curious about studying hypno. Um, and it was the first time I, I, I heard of an account that made sense past life recall. I wasn't very into Buddhism at that point yet. So um, that actually this conversation is what got me into Buddhism, starting to study orientations around spiritual tradition, 
that would um, make sense of a lifehood that from a particular perspective, which just looked like it was filled with suffering and then ended yeah. that way. And it makes sense if we look at that from a broader perspective. And then I got into from Buddhism, Native American studies, and then from that into ayahuasca shamanism, and then from that into the work of Sri or Yabindo and integral philosophy that became Ken Wilber's like integral theory. Oh, I didn't know that was the source. Yeah. Yeah. Sri Yabindo is this phenomenal philosopher, uh, yogic philosopher in the early 1900s that essentially brought together the various traditions of yoga um, into this integral model that there were, we could talk about it like a theistic traditions mm. and non-theistic, not atheistic, but just essentially non-theistic traditions. And he brought them all under this one kind of umbrella um, archetype. And he has a really beautiful discourse on soul and soul existence and where our soul is when we come in, what is our daemon, what are the archetypal imprints that help us cue back and remember what we've come in to be a part of, who is our soul pod tribe network that we have had some familiarity with, um, what are those primary life imprints that we continue to circle around that might lead to our primary life lessons, and hence the question that when people ask, like, I don't know why I keep finding myself in this, you know, situation, shithole, relationship, like whatever, however I want to judge that. I just keep finding myself in this situation that just keeps playing itself out and I can't get myself out of this. Kind of like, well, maybe that's because it's not necessarily something to cure. It's just something to master. Like it's always going to be there and it's going to continue to help you refine your educational imprint on a soul level for this one piece to essentially help support the evolution of your soul towards its higher consciousness because everything in the universe is constantly evolving. And so with all of those noodlings evolving over time, it just makes most sense to me. And I'm open to that being different because I've, I myself continue to be a student of these traditions. And um, I do choose to dig a number of holes a few feet deep to see if we're getting water. And then if there's a trickle, I'll go deep and then see how that feels. But I'm also, while I'm doing that, I'm still scanning for the other ones because I think we're in the midst of this compilation and evolution, not only mythology, but the experience of our transpersonal psychology. So we want to be honoring the traditions. And when I look around this room, it looks like very much like my house where I have a number of altars and there's a variety of different traditions that I've had the privilege to learn from. And, and we are now a global society. And so we want to honor and give credit and, and respect to each of the traditions that we're, that we're learning from and, and move from what might be an extractive mentality and cultural appropriation to more of a respect mentality and cultural appreciation. And then recognize too, that we're a part of this evolution where all traditions is, is at least if we're going towards the same thing, harmony, fellowship, sustainability, you know, seeing, seeing the, the healed relational threads of our one family come back into a place of 
mutual accord, if we can orient towards that, then we can see that all traditions are speaking towards a similar um, thread of, for lack of a better term, love. And if we're orienting towards that, and most of, if not all of the traditions are coming through their own psychological lens, their own cultural lens towards that outcome, then it just makes sense that we would come into a greater interweaving and a greater evolution of a one, like Bob Marley said, one love, one mind, one heart, one family orientation. And that's why I think the, the this medicine path is becoming more and more available these days. Um, because there are universal truths that are in, in the background and the backdrop of our personal truths. And so if we come into connection with somebody who has resonance at a particular level, like, is there something here for us to feed and to learn from? My daemon might be a part of my soul experience that is actually seeking a particular person or process right. so that it's going to serve my greater unfoldment. It might still be uncomfortable. It might be a circular experience with a recurring illness, right? And the, and the, and the lessons, we're going to keep circling around the lessons <laughs> until we learn it. And then we graduate, so to speak, that class and then move on to the next one. So if we can take that kind of perspective that you're inviting and do that with radical objectivity and curiosity, mm -hmm. then it, it typically allows the healing to happen in a more easeful way because there's less resistance. Yeah. It's like, can I move from victim to par participant? That's the greatest threshold mm -hmm. moment. And it's also one of the hardest ones because we have to drop our story of being a victim or that somebody else is to blame yeah. for this thing that I'm going through. 27 threads emerged listening to that. <laughs> and I'm trying to feel into which of the 27 to pull. Holy shit. Uh, I love you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, man, there are truly so many. Like one that came up is, uh, do you think the moment that we have uh, artificial intelligence style nervous system that can hold consciousness that souls will start to come into artificial intelligent bodies and be in, but... I don't even want to go there yet because there's so much other, but like that was one well, of the 20. Let's mark that because yeah. that's a cool question. Um, one of the things that I've been feeling into and I can feel that what I'm about to offer uh, in the broad integrative context that you just offered might seem inc incredibly simplistic, but it is what's something that's very alive for me is uh, I think the DSM is one of the um, biggest negative spell books that has been mm. created by western culture and there's a long story there but um one of my like personal goals is almost to like reimagine the dsm as uh these are all the ways your daemon will try to speak to you if you are not in your dharma or resisting your dharma mm. and that we have all of these different things that we call disorders but it really feels like these are the different types of invitations that the daemon will offer an ego that's out of alignment with its dharma and that it might be incredibly simplistic but one of my intuitions right now um, is that like the ultimate salve to most mental disorders and of course there are asterisks and caveats for like concussions and but you could also take a step back and but mm -hmm. is um 
if you are in alignment with your dharma almost in the Tao of your dharma like every moment that you're like in sync with the song of mm -hmm. your soul um all the symptoms get quieter mm -hmm. and it's not that you can ever cure them because they're actually not a thing to be cured in the same way that if someone's dancing to music if you ever get off rhythm you're going to get the feedback from the, your body that you're out of rhythm mm -hmm. there is a way to live your now where there's a complete absence of symptoms and so i'm just wondering like what mm -hmm. if, if that resonates and what's mm -hmm. coming up and uh but again there were 27 threads mm -hmm. and i wish we had nine hours mm -hmm. but yeah well we've hit, we've hit two of them <laughs> one will mark and then yeah. one will dive into um i think there's a lot to be said for what you just shared in regards to the dsm and the whole med medical system that labels particular symptom clusters as diseases and illnesses to and be fixed nouns yeah to these these fixed because they're their own little archetype and and that can become an identity um and that can um, be propagated by an overly capitalistic medical model that has its place for sure we're very good in interventional medicine correct um, and yet there are many other sacred seats at the table of integrative care, Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, other interventional medicines, herbal medicine, homeopathic medicine, somatic medicines. You know, so there, when we have a large tool kit, then we can be more artful. If we only have a sledgehammer and you're trying to build a house, then you're going to have to find a different way for all of those pieces to be a bit more durable. Um, or you're going to keep pounding and cause more and more destruction that would be more artfully presented if you had something like a scalpel or a ledger. I mean, you could you know draw that out. And so while I appreciate very much, when I broke my neck, I didn't go straight to my herbalist. Amen. Thankfully. Yeah. I probably would have actually <laughs> if other people would have intervened on my behalf. I appreciate the honesty. I love that. <laughs> like when I was living down in the jungle and I was in the midst of a dieta and it was so strong. I was working with Chidik Sanango for three day, three weeks and and didn't sleep for three weeks. And just the, the light show, the open channel was so robust, downloading volumes and volumes of integrative medicine. I didn't sleep for three weeks. And um you know, your nervous system and immune system can only handle that for so long and right. blew a fuse and um, got uh, uh, sandfly bites. Those got infected. I got septic and I wouldn't take antibiotics because I was so committed to natural medicine. So there are ways that thankfully our guides, angels, support staffs intervene on our behalf when we might. And I, at that time I was stuck in dogma admittedly so and i was very committed to integrative medicine and i was deep in that path and i wanted to learn it as well as we could call it the shamanistic art so to speak so i had made allopathic medicine wrong at that time if i was to have that experience again because of everything i studied I, now i know i have more options right and i was taking massive doses doses of colloidal silver internally and externally that finally kicked it and colloidal silver is actually very good for treatment resistant antibiotic uh, or antibiotic um, resistant uh, skin infections like MRSA, like the, the, um, the flesh eating bacteria that we, we hear about. Side note, but you know, so we, we learn these different experiences through challenges 
Um, and some of those challenges look like symptom clusters and those symptom clusters can be um, hard to put like a universal imprint on um, from a medical model to have common languaging. So the DSM, now I think we're up to, five. it was 5TR or something like, and we're getting close to six. And I mean, it feels like such an old paradigm. I'm still in the paradigm and thankfully so, but there are other things kind of swirling around that paradigm now, which is what transformational medicine has the opportunity to become. We talked a little bit about that earlier. So the DSM-5 gives us common languaging and that's helpful. But ideally, it doesn't mean that that's an identification that a person has to now start wearing as they come from. Look, I I am this person and I have this condition. You might you may you may be in a body inhabited by a physical structure that has this you know outward appearance, and you may have a name that you've become known by, and but that's not your true essence. And all are all are true, you know, how you call yourself, identify yourself. And there's a deeper thread um, that animates our life, that brings our life into um, that, that place of reverence. So there's a lot of deprogramming that has to happen, um, particularly when we get into more empowerment-based medical systems. Like, okay, you've had this experience, yes, you may have even had a truckload of trauma from the medical system itself, yeah. which is unfortunate. Let's let's work to heal that and then rehab the medical system because that's also in need of a lot of support. Yeah. And so from that place of um, recognizing its place where common languaging can, can be supportive, um, the best model for any kind of uh, healing institution is to be able to First and foremost, give people fish. If they're freaking starving, yeah. give them a fish. Yeah. And then do that while you're, you know that the system that you're promoting will also teach them to fish. Right. And then while they're eating the fish that you just gave them, you can let them know that, oh, by the way, as you're nourishing, which you haven't had nourishment in a while, <laughs> when your energy is sufficiently strong, we're going to teach you how to fish too. Right. So that now you have tools moving forward. And so we don't have that kind of model right. yet in, in certain silos that we do, um, but largely we don't. So in the midst of all of this now changing and growing, um, I see that being one of our greatest opportunities is to bring the empowerment-based teachings relevant to the current zeitgeist and system that we find ourselves in. And if we're not all working towards creating a mutually relational, harmonious, sustainable infrastructure, then we're going to be fighting the exact um, battle, so to speak, that we're trying to avoid, which is one of blame, shame, right. guilt, external projection, making everybody else wrong, et cetera. What if we just took the radical position that I'm radically responsible for everything that happens in my life? Like the Ho'oponopono. You come from this place of recognizing like whatever the shit that's happening outside, including with my brother or sister, let me take the radical position that I've also contributed to that. First acknowledge you, let you know that I see you, then to acknowledge that you might be in a particular experience and then acknowledge that I've done something to contribute to that and ask for forgiveness, please forgive me for my contribution. 
and then commit to some degree of reconciliation. And then, oh, by the way, let you know that I love you too in the midst of all of this. You know, so there's like so much healing when we can take this radical power position. It's hard for people that are stuck in a place of disempowerment and suffering to take that position. So it can be a big leap. And so to bring it all back around to kind of the, the question in regards to what is the soul aspect that's being awoken, it's relevant to the time that we find ourselves in. So if, if my soul didn't previously choose to come into this experience at this time with this family constellation in this particular community, then I wouldn't have already equipped within me the very tools that are needed to support not only mine, but everybody's evolution. So we take these radical positions. There's no way that I'm going to be able to prove what I just said. We can't prove, they can't prove faith. That's the thing that's awesome about faith. You get to choose it. (laughs) You can't prove it. You can trust a particular position, but trust becomes faith once it's tested. And then I get to put my kind of like experiential imprint and translational meaning on top of that. And that is tricky to do in isolation. Yeah. And right now there's so many people living in isolation, living in fear, without a narrative and meaning to work towards that we can all communally believe in. And the meaning, the absence of meaning, you know, like Viktor Frankl, right? Man's Search for Meaning, the dude just laid it down. Mm -hmm. Without meaning, our lives just become really shallow and flat. Yeah. And it's easy to say like, what the fuck is it all worth? I'm just gonna eat all my bananas while I'm in this one monkey suit and maybe throw scraps to the rest. And so, you know, again, just coming back to that curiosity, if we can have this radical curiosity about what our, what our souls are inviting us to do, we typically don't listen until we're cracked open. Until it hurts. Until it hurts. Until we start paying attention. Because if it doesn't hurt, then we're not really motivated for any change. Right. And... It hurts come, just coming into a body hurts, squeezing <laughs> through this little wormhole, this little flesh wormhole out into a cold world where, where you know, there are people in masks and sterile lights and slapping me around. That's like my first greeting when I come in. It, you know, people have very different kind of birth imprint experiences, but generally the way we birth most into life right now at this time is kind of like a significantly traumatizing experience. Yeah. So kind of like from the doorway into the doorway out, like they would say in a teepee ceremony, we have the opportunity to have challenge and be worked and, and strengthened, gaining our resilience through that challenge. And so for me, being down in the jungle, when I was going through that process of trying to just figure out what it was all about. You know, like, what is this meaning of life? Like, why are we here? What's, who's the grand puppet master if I'm seeing little babies in the NICU? That was largely what drew me down. And what age is this at? Like when you're down in the jungle? When I was down in the jungle? Uh, I'm dating myself now. (laughs) 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, down there for a year. Uh, And then... Like you said, didn't want to come back. Um, I'd really married the medicine path. Uh, went deep in. 
I realized that it was the first time I'd felt like my dharma was really online mm. and I could fully surrender to the process. I'm prior sorry to, if this question is revealing, but I'm curious what age, what age were you when you were there and that you like felt your dharma for the first time? Like, were you in your early 30s? Yeah, 33 at the time. Yeah, between 33 and 34. Ah. Well, you look great for 73, man. I <laughs> <laughs> dig it. <laughs> and may that continue to be true for all of us. Yeah, that's a, a radical position I've been taking lately too. It's like, you know, whatever it is that I want in my life, is that also what I want for everybody yeah. in their lives? Like comparative, you know, like. Yeah. I, it just becomes more and more apparent to me, like all life's sacred. Um, there's a Lakota saying, what essentially means everything's sacred. Everybody's important. There might be a hierarchy because we have different roles, but hierarchy just means sacred order. And so if every life is sacred, because we're all contributing to the mandala of this one floating water rock, then my life's no better or worse than anybody else's and nobody else's is better or worse than anybody else's. So that means like everything that I would want for my life, it just makes sense that I'd want for that for everybody else. But all of those things, you know, that we're talking about, like, you know, these different positions that I might have at this time, can I also hold those to be malleable and changeable? And there was an accelerated path of union or like, you know, yoga with my dharma, so to speak, union with my dharma at that time. It was the first time it came on. First time I also appreciated that I could fully surrender because I could fully trust. Mm. And I didn't fully trust people. Yeah, It's only recent that that's actually happened. That I could trust the plants. I could trust mm. nature. I could trust my teacher at that time who was holding my diets. That's such a great point that... Uh, Things can happen to you where you don't trust people, but if you learn how to be with nature, you can actually trust that nature isn't deceiving, you know, the same way that like humans can deceive, which mm -hmm. is, and I just want to say 15 threads opened up on that last one. And there's quite a few that I want to pull on, but um, it feels like this is the one that's most alive. When you say that your Dharma came online when you were 33, um, what was it? Like, what did it feel like? Um, super curious and mm -hmm. also I think it'd be great for the listeners yeah it was the first time I knew I was in the very right place mm. you know there were times in my younger years where like I went to college right here at St. Ed's just a mile down the road oh, wow. uh, I was captain of the team 4.0 two-time All-American I, I received more academic and uh, sports related awards than anybody else in the history of the university. I mean, there were like uh, all these identifications. Was it soccer? Soccer. And those were things that were stroking my ego for sure. Uh, it felt like I was in the right place there for sure. But there also, back then it still, still felt like I was trying to prove myself. I was yeah. still trying to strive for something. And when I was down and when I went through all my medical training, I was still searching and searching and searching. And I was still going down, you know, like running the rat maze, going down blind alleys, reverse track. You know, I can smell that cheese somewhere. <laughs> and when I finally, through a series of events, found myself, which only happened in the midst of crisis. Right. And did it begin with the, like, confronting what neonatal 
infants were going through? Like, was that the beginning of the cascading events? It was the beginning of me questioning who's in charge, mm. for sure. Even when I broke my neck, I wasn't questioning who was in charge. Cause how, I, how old were you when you broke your neck, just so I can mm -hmm. start yep. to... Two weeks before medical school. Whoa. So it was the summer between college and medical school. So I was 22. 22 broke my neck. That's what most of these tattoos are, just different initiation points. 22 wow. broke my neck. 33 found the medicine path. 44 started to come into this current iteration of transformational medicine and serving something larger than myself. Yeah. So is that... It's that soul initiation when we move from the I to the we, when we move from adolescent to adult yep. and our inhabitation of our soul's dharma. And we're more clear about our daemon and how it is shaping our lives. So this, the crisis that I experienced at 22 wasn't sufficient enough <laughs> to create a, a totally new ego identification, but it was significantly important because it's, it, it changed the trajectory of my life. Prior to that, going into medical school, I was going to do surgery, mm. surgery or ER medicine, because they were very transactional. I was used to being in the hospital, you know, splinted up, casted up, all kinds of different, you know, battle wounds, so to speak, that I wore with pride. And so I was used to just being in and out and, you know, cutting off pain and stepping on the person if that person was in my way to get what I wanted. And so it was very harsh, aggressive, quick. Not to say that surgery or ER medicine have to be that way, but that was just my orientation. And then when I broke my neck. Um, how did you break it? I dove off a pier and hit a sandbar. Mm. Yeah, about 20 feet into knee high water with my hands behind my head. Which is a trip because I never even dove in a swimming pool like that before. Um, so it had to happen. Also a trip because I'd been in the same spot the year before wade fishing. So subconsciously I knew and I wasn't oh, drunk man. and I wasn't altered. Yeah. So it was just this like perfect script for exactly yeah. what needed to happen. And uh, I wore a halo for three months as opposed to getting internally fixated. I was externally fixated. That's even a funny term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's more of that, yeah. Um, so, you know, those things screwed into my skull and for three months while I'm starting medical school too. Uh, and so it finally slowed me down with the load of trying, or trying to memorize textbooks of phone books of information um, and not being able to move very well. It finally slowed me down. Mm. And then it got me really curious too. Like, whoa, I, I was just half a millimeter from transecting my cord. And it seems like something may have just kind of like softened that just enough so that I didn't end up in a wheelchair. So yeah. there was, that was the first like, oh, some, something just happened that's monumental. And it just planted enough seed for me with, with, within psychiatry and neurology. I still surfed around with, with pediatrics for long enough because pediatrics was still interventional enough and it was still part of like more of a humanistic field, like more relational field. But then I got into psychiatry and neurology and that was a better fit. And so all of this starts to grow and starts to rise, but I'm still fairly ego identified in who I have been. Um, eventually became married uh, towards the end of my medical training uh, and my residency and um, fellowship, 
I didn't resonate with how psychiatry is being, we were being trained because it was all, and it was just tweaking little knobs on receptor profiles and giving different medication protocols. And I'm like, well, I can train a monkey to just, you know, feed feed widgets according to these decision trees. The standard of care says, okay, if depression, try Zoloft. If Zoloft doesn't work, try Paxil. If Paxil doesn't work, try a different class of antidepressant. If that doesn't work, then raise the dose. If that, you know, it's like, it was pretty stale. Um, for me, it wasn't as like interrelational. It kind of lost a lot of its magic, at least in the training, in, in the programs that I was affiliated with. Um, so it was like the first time, like, this isn't all that's here for. So I eventually ended up practicing integrative psychiatry to help people get off of psychiatric medications. And we were doing good work, but the, the question was still not being, the thirst wasn't being quenched. Like the soul-centered medicine piece, the soul-level psychiatric investigation. I didn't even know I was searching for at that time. Eventually became married and was with my partner at the time for close to five years. And when we came to the end of our relationship and it was clear that we had done our work together, I couldn't feel it. I was still that same kind of like cold, guarded, wow. uh, don't trust people kind of person. And I knew I didn't want to live that, that way because we went through our mediation and I was just cold. I was like, yeah, take it all. I don't need it. Bye. <laughs> and she was like crushed. And I had a, enough self-awareness to realize like, well, I don't want to be living like that. I don't want to be having this imprint on people. And I also don't want to spend my life with somebody for five years and not give a shit. It, yeah. Right. So I made a strong prayer in a sweat lodge uh, about a month after that. Like, wow, please help me open up my heart. And then sure enough, uh, <laughs> one of my best friends now, who at that time was just more of an acquaintance, he said, you know, I think there might be a gathering that you want to be a part of. And that was an ayahuasca circle. My first ayah said. And that, it's crazy what happens when you set an earnest prayer. When you set that prayer. And one of the things that I can feel for me is when I was younger, there was the type of prayer where like energetically I could feel that I was actually closed off to it being heard. Mm -hmm. And then something happened at some point in my life. And I really think once you experience enough pain where the internal sensation is you're praying now with the expectation of it being received. And it's those prayers that the thing that I now say is whenever I say a prayer like that in as graceful and as beautiful a way as possible, mm -hmm. because when I first started using that power and not adding that at the end, the universe is so ready to hear you that it can sometimes be violent. But mm -hmm. I love that it started with a earnest prayer. Mm -hmm. Yes, please may this thing happen that I'm praying for also be laced with grace and ease. Yes. <laughs> and 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 sometimes it is. And those yeah. great those graceful and easeful moments may come as whispers, but do I listen to those whispers? Mm -hmm. And do I actually need somebody to knock on the door? And then if I don't listen to the knock, because I didn't listen to the whispers, then somebody might need to break down my door. Like a fireman coming to the house. He's gonna first say, Is anybody home? Nobody's home. I'm not listening, not paying attention, just gonna keep marching along, doing my thing, sipping my ties by the pool. You know, life is chill. Okay, knock on the door. Anybody home? No, I'm still pretty comfortable in my lone little, like, you know, monkey suit. Okay, we're gonna bust the door down because right. there's smoke coming out. Like, why would they show up? Right. That's your daemon coming in and saying, Okay, this isn't your trajectory. This isn't all that there is. You haven't fulfilled what you've come to be a part of. And so that can feel violent. And it's actually yeah. 
done out of love at the deepest aspect of our being. Completely agree. And it's hard to know that because I didn't know when, you know, I was introduced to ayahuasca. And if it stopped there, then, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. Maybe I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now or like the fulfillment of all of it. But I didn't know that when I asked that question, and it was an earnest question, mm -hmm. it was an earnest prayer. So I guess the prayer is like making the statement, the question, the unspoken question is, okay, how is that gonna be answered? And so I didn't know that that was gonna include a 10 year odyssey of reliving intimately every experience that had shut my heart down in the first place. And in the midst of that, that was a year of a suicidal depression living in a tent in the woods of Sedona, ready to cash in my ticket. And there's a, you know, a lot more to unpack there, but the recognition of what you're saying is that the, the answers to our prayers, like there's an old Garth Brooks song, like, what is it? Um, Thank God for unanswered prayers, <laughs> you know? And, oh, man. And, and our prayers are oftentimes being answered in ways that our egos don't like. Right. But if we can have faith that there's a deeper intelligence working, right? That summary statement of man's search for meaning, the last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. That means okay, I have a teaching that I can hold on to that might resonate. I have somebody that embodied it because when you know his backstory, you're like, well, that yeah. wasn't just a Hallmark Dude, card. No. Right? He just brought it, lived it, and then brought it, and then set the bar. Right? Like what we're doing with Kuya. Yeah. You, know, you walk into that place and you see that physical facility and you're like, oh, okay, this sets a new bar. And... So how is it that we, in the midst of our own suffering, find brothers and sisters, find a community of transformation, a community of inspiration, a community of like-minded, like-hearted brothers and sisters along the path to support us to do what we're here to do? That's vital. And it's also true that most teachers of various spiritual traditions would say that the spiritual path is a lonely path. Mm. Because at some point, we have to walk that road of our own shadows and our own making no one's gonna be able to walk it for us ideally we don't walk it alone you know like you know in, in the background we know that we have that support available usually it feels like we're walking alone right. because the ego is being disidentified with everything that it knew and safety and security and we have so many teachings and so many different like mythological stories and and that's why it's helpful for to have elders yeah and not just olders, right? Michael Mead makes this great that. distinction between the olders and the elders, like the, the elders in the community that can offer these wisdom teachings and also provide the experiences of initiation rites that have the arc of challenge and potential annihilation, largely of the ego. But, you know, Maladoma Somme in West Africa would talk about some of the initiation rites of the Dagara tribe and say, yeah, some, some of our guys didn't make it through, yeah. like literally didn't survive. Not just the ego death, but the monkey suit. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> How would we do it in our current cultural right. landscape where we have these rites of passage that are codified by our elders that share these stories and are able to give us just the right, you know, like Gandalf was just right there at the right time to help Frodo and Bilbo continue their 
path. Right. And 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 that's part of our daemon rescuing us, you know, just at the or or calling in the support when we're hanging by our little fingernail. And there's this divine intervention. And so the story that we continue to tell ourselves is one that we continue to remake and we have the opportunity to remake it consistently. Yeah. It has to have some degree of consistency from the past. Otherwise it's schizophrenic. Yes. If we come, if we are, are somebody totally different from one day to the next, then we're probably going to get locked up in an institution. Yeah. And so thankfully there, there are graduated um, movements, but over the arc of time, we can see like, Oh, wow who I used to be, my truth then, my story then is radically different than it is now. Yeah. Maybe the monkey suit's a little similar with some, you know, more gray hairs and more wrinkles, but my underlying identity of who I know myself to be, how I know my life to be experienced, um, and those people that I have carried with me and those people that I've lovingly let go because many of the people I grew up with, we might not be having the same kind of conversation because there might not necessarily be a resonant field. And that's not good or bad. It's just a recognition that we grow and we evolve over time. And then we find those that we're more in resonance with over time. And so as you have offered me the opportunity to just share my particular story, this is an ideal expression or, you know, one of others um, that we're reclaiming in our current experience or offering of psychotherapy and psychiatry and like the personal narrative that gets woven into a healing process to be able to actually ask people, who do you, who have you known yourself to be? Yeah. Who do you believe, who do you believe that you might be becoming in the midst of this crisis? And usually that's a question just so the ego has some kind of like, okay, something meaningful is happening. Usually if we're in the cocoon, we don't know what the fuck's happening. We don't know who the heck's trying to emerge. But it's just enough of a leading question to be able to say like, oh, something's happening. Do you have any idea what that is? And if we can just be with that process, let the new self emerge and let the future self kind of inform through vision, through dream, through communication from our daemon, which is essentially just the the vehicle for communion of, with our soul, then we can put more and more scaffolding around the the mandala of of the integrated whole self that we might not see fully. Like when when Carl Jung was going through his process, and and didn't have any maps. Yeah, thought he was going batshit crazy. Yeah. Didn't have any elders or olders putting any sense around it. So he just did all he knew how to do was listen to his dreams, write it down in a journal, eventually became the red book and eventually became like the pantheon of depth psychology. Like, thank you. Thank you, Young. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Meister Young for just going through that and being willing to put yourself in that position to pave the way for the benefit of humanity. And I think each of us in our own way are doing that. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe not even to the same scale, but you know, scale is really irrelevant. Scales more of just like a advent of the ego to make ourselves feel like we're, we have meaningful lives. Might just be helpful for one person, right? And could that be enough? You know, not to mention just you know generations and thousands and millions of people. But what is just like our one thing to do that 
that only we've come here to do, that there's never been another air God see on planet Earth ever after billions and billions of people. And there will never be another air God see on planet Earth, just like you, just like me, just like Christian, just like all of our brothers and sisters, like this unique fractal of the divine that is vitally important to the whole. Yeah. And when we can claim our worth and our importance while having faith in the process that even though we might be having a really uncomfortable time, can we solidify our faith around the fact that a bad day for the ego actually might be a good day for the soul? Mm, that's a good line. So 24 threads came <laughs> up. Uh, I love that you exist. Thank you for being on the podcast. The one I'm going to grab is, what was your just right Gandalf mentor moment in that uh, year in the tent uh, when you were contemplating suicide? Because my understanding is that's after doing the long stint in the jungle and mm -hmm. you came back and you were like, how do I even, what was that just right Gandalf mentor moment? Mm. Yeah, it was, I, I didn't anticipate having such a hard time integrating. And I also didn't go down to the jungle thinking I was just going to be completely married to the medicine path and rebirthed into a new expression of life. Um, but I lived at the, at the pace of, I don't think I wore shoes for, I put shoes on maybe five times in a year and just mushy, gooey mud in my between my toes every day, living at the pace of nature, way deep. Went to sleep in the sun, woke up with the sun, listened to the birds, talked to the plants. My teacher didn't speak English. And I didn't speak very much Spanish. Wow. So in my broken Spanish, every time I tried to ask him a question about anything that was happening, he just said, go ask the plants. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a perfect relationship to just really unwind and unravel my psyche. And I didn't realize that that was taking me further and further and further away from like the status quo yeah. of culture. So when I came back into society, it was a fucking wreck. I couldn't deal with how aggressive we were, how unkind, how fast. Um, and it was just intense. So I asked a friend of mine, uh, Morgan, who runs a, a, I say R now because I'm, you know, it's, we're family and, and that's a part of my retreat center too, Grace Grove in Sedona, where I met Ob actually. Um, and I called up Morgan and said, dude, I need a tent. I need to get, I need to get in a tent. I need to get quiet fast. Because uh, I'm about to just lose it. <laughs> I feel like I'm living in a microwave. He said, yeah, come out and stay for as long as you need. And so I, and I didn't know that was going to be a year in a tent. And I didn't know that was going to be initiating me into like literally the dark night or the womb, you know, deep in the woods in this little. Yeah, they call it the dark night, but it's very seldom a night. <laughs> right yeah it's it's like the dark season um and and it was beautiful and fucking hard and lonely and confusing until gradually this 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 voice just started speaking on faith and I remember, I still remember it like it was yesterday, just this one moment laying down in bed and I physically lifting up my arm and, and waving my, you know, ethereal golden ticket and just being, and saying like, you know, I'm ready to go. Please release me. 
<clears throat> and um, and then gradually this voice rose that just said, just wait. Faith is rising. And I was kind of curious, like, huh, okay. <laughs> I've never heard voices before <laughs> or like had that intuition for voices. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, I don't even know where it came from. Man's Search for Meaning, the book, arrived on my desk. And I say my desk, you know, I was in a tent, so it was more like a little coffee table. It just seemed to materialize. Wow. And I made a, I made, I may have been in some kind of dis, dissociative stupor and somebody handed it to me and then I brought it back and it was there. However it happened, it, yeah. it found its way to me. And when I read that book and I realized what he had been through, I realized like, well, I am just fucking petty right now. <laughs> My little ego crisis feels so monumental to me. And yet in comparison to the potential of human suffering, it felt like a drop in the bucket. It uh, brings me to tears whenever I feel into it, but that, that that man wrote that story from the situation that he was in um, has saved so many people's lives that it really it's almost an impossible thing to talk about, but that like, if there, in the same way that there's a daemon to an individual soul, there's a daemon to a collective soul. Like, I'm almost afraid to say it, but that the light that came out of the Holocaust might've been that someone was able to write a story that anyone who hears it even a hundred years later because of the context of the suffering, because that's the same thing I get from that book, which is, if this man can write this there, I can fucking get through anything. Anything. It was such a treatise to our potential. Just the, the shimmering light and the darkness. I heard that described too as a definition of soul. Like soul is our light in the darkness. And he was speaking to the soul of humanity of what's possible and and it was just a it was such an amazing juxtaposition to what was happening in the soul of humanity and what's yeah. possible on the shadow side as it is on the light side and it it was such an infusion and a recognition like you're saying of what's possible and i knew that if he could do it i could do it because we're all made of the same stuff. There was just this knowing, like what he did is not different than what is possible for me. And shortly thereafter, I had been like peripherally, I had studied Jesus's life, kind of similar. And, and one of the things that Jesus was fond of saying pretty frequently was all these things I do, you can do and more. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So it really calls forth our greatness 
and our responsibility. Yeah. Our responsibility to use our lives well. And one of the things that I want to touch on before we get away from it, because I think it's fascinating, is um, often on the podcast, we'll get to someone's like darkest experience. And if they ever got really close or fully ready to like commit suicide or to die, what's what I've heard over and over again is a voice emerges. And the voice often comes um, as like a single statement. Hmm. And that there's something about the quality of the voice and the resonance of the statement that uh, keeps the person from suicide. Mm. I've had one moment in my life where I genuinely wanted to kill myself. And uh, I had eaten too much of an edible. I got in the car. I got into a car accident. And I was in the middle of the road. And a woman was banging on my door. And she was saying, you hit my baby. You hit my baby. And in the you know, with the context of the edible, I thought I'd killed a child. And I like saw my, I saw my future flash before my eyes, and I like saw it die. And I had this moment where I knew, like, if I had had a gun in the car, I would have killed myself. And I heard this voice just fucking take responsibility one moment at a time. And like the way it came through was just like, I'm going to face this. And ended up, a uh, child was in her car, but not harmed. Uh, she was the one at fault. She had hit me. Uh, the cops didn't search my car. I had drugs in the car. Um, and uh, they paid for my tow truck and like it worked out. And it's, it's, it's this interesting thing that I've, I've felt come through on the podcast that, mm. um, are you familiar with Buckminster Fuller? Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with his story of where he tried to kill himself? No. Um, he had started a business with his uh, wife's father and it didn't work out and they lost all their money and he drove to the pier to like walk into the lake and drown himself. And he gets like knee deep in and he hears this voice and the voice says something like, um, your life is not yours to take. You still have something left to give. And it was from that point that everything that we know of him came afterwards. Wow. And I just wanted to share those with you because uh, it seems to be almost like a archetypical aspect of the psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that experience, thank you for sharing your story and, and his story too. When we crack open to the degree through crisis, like Barbara Marks Hubbard says, crisis precedes transformation every time. And, and, and we have these aphorisms and, and we kind of know it intellectually, but you have to be in it. Yeah. And, you have, and we have to go through a, a, a crisis that is sufficient to crack our ego to the core. Because in the cracking open, then something new can be revealed the soul now has room to share. The ego was just stuffing it down before. There was too much external orientation, too much of the minutia, too much of yeah. like, you know, my needs not getting met and me just being in my own pettiness or whatever, like my own neuroses. My own neuroses just crowds the landscape that often is the overshadowed volume 
so that the voice of my soul just gets drowned out. Yeah. And so when we hit these crises moments, it's down to the foundation. And when we give up, I'm going to just give up on, on life, right? Like we, we had a good run, tapping out. We give up to that degree at the deepest part of ourself. And, and we can't initiate that at will. No. <laughs> right? It's like, like life, life intervenes on our behalf for that to happen. Yeah. We give up to a degree that opening occurs. And then what comes next is the, is the, the soul now has more agency and more room than it's had before. And when we're able to listen to that voice from the deepest aspect of our being, then it's the inflection and we can give over. Mm. It's this moving, it's this moving from giving up to giving over, giving over to something greater than our own egos. And, and when that happens, that's an inflection moment. It's a catalytic moment that catalyzes our new walk, our new listening at least. The two things that arise is the first one is that the uh, overarching metaphor that Jung used for the psyche or the individuation of the psyche was the acorn and the oak tree. And the thing like without you consciously real or choosing to like all the metaphors like perfectly fit and like your ego is the shell of the acorn. And it's what you have to create in order to survive, you know, the predicament that you were born into that you chose. That's hypothesis, but it's the one that you're born into. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like our current mental health model is we think what we ought to do is reduce the attempts of the intelligence inside of the seed that would cause the rupturing. It's almost like we're, we're trying to stop it. We're trying to inhibit the natural expression of the acorn. Like one of the things that comes through is like, uh, you, you feel your neurosis because you're an oak tree stuck inside of an acorn and then it's trying to rupture it. And then the soul gets all this extra room to like, oh my God, I'm roots. I'm a trunk. I'm a tree. I bear fruit. I give shelter. I can interconnect with the other trees. So just that was beautiful that the metaphors you were using perfectly fit into that. And the other thing is it feels like the orientation in the psyche before the rupturing of the acorn is the thing on the throne is the ego. And then once the acorn ruptures, there's this switching that happens where it's like the soul is now on the throne and the ego is a servant to the soul. Mm. And Jung has this epic quote in the Red Book. And it's something like, um, I feel like a serf bringing a treasure to a master I cannot see knowing that if I didn't, holding it would burn me or consume mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And it's just this like beautiful mm-hmm. um, metaphorical like grace is when the ego gets off of the throne and it's like, I will bring you whatever you ask me to bring you. I am the surf. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Amen. And it's so extraordinarily hard to do that in a culture that does not have an archetypal understanding. So to give over means to give 
full faith into something that we can't prove that our society really values being able to identify point prove hold right that we're recovering from you know this mind body separation this etc and such a lovely process to recognize that there is this inherent burning desire to bring our greatest self forth because we all have it inside yeah and jung was tapped in he had cracked open <laughs> he was in touch with the collective unconscious the soul of the world the noosphere there's a variety of different ways that we can categorize it and as a result tapped into this universal field of understanding this universal truth where our ego might get like kicked off the throne <laughs> through crisis and its personal truth gets kicked off the the throne then the soul truth can emerge and the soul is is most connected to the soul of the world the yeah. soul of humanity this this universal imprint have have you read bill plotkin cuz mm -hmm. this is yeah hurt gone yeah yeah per, like his eco develops developmental soul wheel moving from what is it ego formation ego social identification into from the i to the we and then into claiming our dharma claiming our, what is our you know soul work to offer to the collective and then moving from cultural world and universal union and and again it's so it is universal these teachings are universal these experiences are universal the bhagavad gita says the same thing you you have a dharma if if you're not engaging and serving your dharma it will kill you if you do it will save you it's very clear like <laughs> and to hear jung's description of like the being burned alive from the inside out it's such a travesty to feel like someone has gone through the entire arc of their life never really fulfilling that which they've come to do yeah this is where medicine work is really helpful because it allows us this window into the psyche that the ego is able to rest its you know the the strength it of doesn't its have armor. A choice it's going to rest right and fucking hey man i can't imagine my life without the medicine path Same. i had a really like probably most of us in this room i had a really intact very guarded well defended ego armored 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 started to have a little bit of opening when i broke my neck but still needed more yeah and then started to very much un unfold and open up with ayahuasca still needed more um and my call to action became my sister's suicide hmm. and that was eight years after i was introduced to ayahuasca and i was still just doing my little work real quiet my family thought i had just gone down to the jungle to study herbal medicine they didn't even know what i was doing wow. none of my friends knew what i was doing i kept it really quiet uh and and she had been doing pretty well and we weren't that close uh she grew up in a different household and she's nine years older so we didn't grow up with a huge a ton of overlap but when we were together there was so much love and when she left 
it was my call to action. Like, wow, okay, there's there are these technologies that unfortunately she wasn't introduced to and I know are helpful for humanity. Yep. So now we find ourselves in this kind of growing field of psychedelic therapy and all of its promise and all of its shadow too, yep. as billions of dollars come in, but we haven't really changed the medical model. We're just using another fancy yep. fancy tool, but still in an existing pharmaceutical model. I'm hoping it's Trojan horsing. I think it will be. I think it has to be because it's so powerful. I think it's the nature of the intelligence of the thing that we're trying to use in the old model. Inside of it, there's a fucking oak tree. Right. You know? Yeah. So sell, sell people what they want and give them what they need. Right. It's still laced under that. Right. There's still going to be a, a greater crisis that's going to need to happen for us to collectively orient towards yeah. sustainability or choose to not to. And then there's going to be a huge rift and we're already seeing yeah. that play out. So we find ourselves with these amazing tools at this time of need. And right, that's like the whole hero and heroine's journey. Divine intervention comes just at the right time to potentially be used or not yeah. for us to come into greater alignment with what is what is ours to do. This is a side thread, but I think it actually complements what you just said, but it might take some explaining to meet you there. But um I really got into the research of like the history of uh, psychiatric medication uh, when I read the book, um, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Phenomenal book. Epoch changing for me. Mm. Um, but I started doing this research and basically uh, my understanding based off of this book, and he has over 800 references in this book. So if you guys uh, aren't tracking what I'm saying, I recommend the book, is that all of our first wave of psychiatric meds, so the antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and anti-psychotic, were accidents of us trying to create vaccines. That the first um, vaccine that we came up with that we used in World War One was so effective at keeping our soldiers from dying in trenches that like, our science community was like, this is the next thing. And then there were uh, coincidental, coincidental side effects of some of these that were being tested. And they were like, oh, this makes people relax more. Or, oh, this makes people who act this way be less intense. Um, what's really interesting is the first scientific paper that was ever written that became the foundation for the, verse, for the first vaccine. I don't remember his name, and I'm going to go find it. But uh, in his actual scientific article that he published, um, it's the first mention of the phrase magic bullet. And, and it's, it's the idea that uh, if we can get the chemical just right, we can go into the body, not disrupt anything, and just do the one thing we want to do and then come out. And the idea that the book was talking about is like, this is almost like the zeitgeist of the current medical model is that we believe that we can magic bullet the human body or the human psyche. And what the book didn't get into, and uh, because I have such a obsession with myth, I was like, where did that German scientist even get that phrase from? And there's a German myth called Freischutz, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, but it's about a marksman who is trying to win the love of his beloved by winning a competition. 
and he doesn't do well, and he goes into the woods forlorn, and he offers a sincere prayer. And in the dark night, full moon of the woods, a figure comes and offers him seven arrows. And he says, these are magical arrows. They will always hit their mark. I will give them to you, but the price is that I get to choose where the last arrow lands. And so the marksman is like, yes, let's take it. So he goes to the next competition, bullseye, wins the heart of his beloved, but now he's got six more bullets. He wants to go win six more competitions. At the last competition, he shoots the arrow, it pierces the heart of his love, and she dies. Jung has this, you know, idea that uh, until the unconscious is made conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And I think our stories um, can control our lives until mm. we make them conscious and then we choose, is this a story I want to play out? Mm. My dramatic, mythological-oriented mind is that um, we've picked that myth on accident and it's playing out. Because mm. the what that book shows is that the long-term studies that show the uh, safety of all of the anti or all of the psychiatric meds that we're using. It changes in specific ways in each incident, but long-term they seem to wound the nervous system more than how they're helping in the short term. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the machine is doing that with psychedelics because it's the only thing it knows how to do is it's trying to use it like a magic bullet but there's this essence inside of it that feels like it's the trojan horse that feels like it's being presented to the machine in a way where it will re receive it which might look bad to people in like the medicine space at the beginning but it feels like there's an intelligence happening where uh, we're gonna do something to the machine from the inside because of the essence of the thing that it's trying to use like a magic bullet mm. yeah there are so many different motivating forces for people getting involved in psychedelic therapies right now on one side you have capitalistic interests on the other side you have altruistic interests and those can be overlapped in the middle to varying degrees as well and if we don't have a model that is sufficiently oriented towards becoming whole and sustainable, then by definition, it's not going to last. And at minimum, it'll be one of those blind alleys that we have to go down in the maze and just realize like, oh yeah, that didn't do so well. So backtrack and find another way. At worst, it's going to bastardize, make wrong, and potentially even marginalize even further these medicines from helping to largely save humanity, which they have the potential to do. <clears throat> like Graham Hancock offered in that legendary TED Talk, this is a war on consciousness. Yeah. And you can't solve a problem using the same mindset that created it. Einstein, yeah. Right. And so when we do have sufficient reorientation, through a crack in our psyches, large enough to let our soul's voice through, and then to hold that in the container of a community, yeah. in, in the container of an organizational framework of transformation, a la like the Native American medicine wheel as one map. 
um, Plotkin's eco-developmental soul-centric wheel as one, the Buddhist wheel of samsara as one, right? We have, we, we have these maps. They all tend to be wheels. That might be a hint. Right, right. Because when, you know, when we see those maps and they don't actually just go circular, they go spiral because they're not just two-dimensional. They're actually three-dimensional and in many ways spherical because it's all happening in the now present moment. And when we can find more agency or understanding of where we're at on the wheel, then it gives us meaning and understanding. And the greatest freedom comes from the experience of having meaning that's well beyond our own small preferences. We meaning. We meaning, right. And so when Frankl's able to go through and actually realize that he had written a good bit of logotherapy and man's search for meaning even prior to the concentration camp, and then they seized his manual and burned it. So now he really had to live it. Like Ram Dass said the same thing, when he got quote unquote stroked by God is when it, the practice became in action. And- You know, and it's, it's the same thing with Jung. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just having this connection right now, but uh, he mastered or got sufficient enough at navigating the unconscious and then it's like, now nah, you got to go live it. And this brings up an interesting thing. And I want to respect your time because I still got a lot of threads. So just whenever you We're just good. let us know. Um, one of the things that comes up in my mind every so often is like, beware what you become a master at because of these stories. Like there's something about like, I'm really learning like the hero's journey. And I'm giving people the advice of like how to navigate like the darkest things. And, you know, like there's a part of me that's like, what the fuck is my daemon preparing me for? So that's an interesting thread. Mm. Another one is um, this feels like this is a beautiful time to bring in Kuya. If that feels like that's Mm. something that you're ready to talk about. Because I know that Mm -hmm. it's still uh, incubating, but it's close. Because it feels like. What I've seen, at least, is anyone who starts on this path where they're moving from being captured in the acorn to really getting into the tree. Um, what I have seen in our culture is like the the end point of that dance is I feel called to create a place in the three-dimensional world where people can gather, where the healing can happen in community, and that... Um, it seems like it's the natural last stage of at least this point of what is being called from the mandala of this squishy, very interesting rock. Mm. And I am absolutely in love and in awe with what y'all are doing at Kuya. Mm. And like, just like, I love how the energy of it has already extended beyond the building. And you guys, like what you guys have done to the outside, like mm. it's, it's already changing the vibe. Mm. And like we're in a fucking industrial like lot and there's no spirit inside of any of these buildings that's strong enough where it comes outside of the building. Mm. Kuya is the only thing out here Mm. that does. And I think that's just a beautiful like testament to I'm watching you as, ooh, this is someone doing like the end point Mm. of at least the trajectory I see most of the people I know and that I care about want to move into. So I just love to grok about anything about mm. kuya 
And then the third thing is we still could talk about the souls coming into AI bodies. Mm. I just wanted to bring that back just in case. <laughs> totally. Uh, let's take them in order. Beautiful. Because number one and number two are highly connected. Interestingly enough, and I don't think we had shared this or talked about it, uh, a significant portion of our experiential educational model, like, like Stan Groff said, you know, we have we have religious understanding of God. It's intellectual. What we're lacking is an experiential spirituality, which is what medicine work largely offers us, the experience of God, at least long enough to let us know that ooh, there's something there, <laughs> you know, and then we get to reverse engineer it and make it more right. meaningful day to day in our lives. And so we wanted to have an experiential educational model because my desire is very much to be able to teach people how to fish. While if they're starving, yes, give them fish, meet them where they're at. And to have an educational model teaching them how to fish that is experiential. It's not just intellectual. It's not just numbers and data and a stale narrative. But actually have them work through a process of their own understanding with a good bit of it based on the hero's journey, the hero and the heroine's journey. When Campbell brought through Hero with a Thousand Faces, that was largely a textbook. It was a textbook on the entire cultural anthropology and historical representation of these different mythologies. And not easy to read. And not easy. I mean, unless you just geek out on this stuff, I was just enthralled, but it's kind of stale. It doesn't have as much of the personal connection. So it's hard to identify where we're at in our right. own hero's journey. So I wanted to write that. I didn't actually want to write that. It just kind of happened. COVID happened. And then we were in between Boulder and Austin. And I went into a, a summer writing retreat, not this past summer, but the previous summer, summer 2019. And, um, at that time, I was also, just curiously enough, orienting towards a doctor, the doctor of divinity degree. Um, I was really into Martin Luther King. I was really into wow. Michael Beckwith. I was really into uh, many amazing teachers who had this doctor of divinity degree. So I started researching it, getting more curious about it. Um, and it's a 60-hour degree plan, which usually takes oh, wow. a couple of years. It's fairly intensive. Um, and I was just so enamored and, stro and, and stoked. So I throttled down and ended up getting my Dr. Divinity last or year before last. But the reason I bring Casual, all that, yeah. <laughs> the reason I bring all that up <laughs> is because I knew we were, I was creating something for Kuya to be an experiential educational model. And one of the books... Um, that I could research and do a dissertation on to meet that degree plan was Hero with a Thousand Faces. Nice. So I went deep into that because I think you and I were connected at Fit for Fit for Service like 2018 and down in Tulum. And, and even like in the beginning of that year, prior to Tulum, I found myself really orienting towards that hero and heroine's journey. And so when I got into that book, I realized, well, that's a fascinating text, but it's a textbook. It's not a workbook. Right. So our guide to transformation is the workbook. Like, what does it look like when you actually identify each of those stages and give people identification, skills, and acquisition, um, put them into a larger community framework, you know, and and unpack it to to the extent that people can now have agency and empowerment and start participating actively in their process. Because <clears throat> our souls will 
lovingly drag us through the trenches. But when we can actually like stand up and say, okay, actually I have, I have some of now my, my own faculties to engage it. Opportunity for grace. Opportunity for grace. Allow ourselves, avail ourselves to that process. And if I can, you know, have a guide or have a mentor or teacher kind of along the way, for me, it was very much the books that I was reading at the time. Um, then now I can participate more actively, have an empowered, like dance with it. I can dance with my process as opposed to feeling like I'm just getting drugged yeah. through my process. And so that is just a reflection to say, yes, the hero and the heroine's journey for me is vitally important. Um, and I also like Bill Plotkin's work, you know, in, in the recognition or Gilbert, I think it's Morin, Morin Gilbert who wrote yeah. uh, King, Lover, Warrior, Magician. Like in that warrior archetype, the hero is still a fairly immature yeah. expression. Which I love how they break that down, yeah. And and it gives us even, you know, in this kind of conversation where we're talking about the cultural process that we're going through, we tend to idolize heroes in our culture and our culture is fairly immature in its expression. 100%. I think that's being kind. I, that fairly. might be kindly stated. Yeah. When, when we think about an, an adolescent, they're wrestling with their power, the, the, like the expression of their power. They're highly um, explorational. They're highly um, codified within their own like social silos and tribes. Um, we at that age are fairly immature. We're fairly egocentric. We're fairly self-centered. We're fairly focused on sex, status, success, are you describing most of the leaders in the world right now, <laughs> right. Dr. Dan? Right. And so the leaders of an ad, an, an adolescent culture, by definition, going to be adolescents. And so when we can look through it through the entire arc and recognize like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that expression. It's just not the most mature I and therefore harmonious and sustainable position to have in the wheel. And we don't have many elders that are in leadership positions, particularly political positions yet. That's going to happen eventually yes. out of necessity. And, and so this hero and heroine's journey can be put into the context if we let go of those labels and just call it the soul journey of initiation like Plotkin did or have our own kind of framework around that. We call it the guide to our guide to transformation. And to be able to impregnate these kinds of discussions around those different stationary points that aren't station stationary, but that's how we learn because <laughs> right. we, you know, bring in information kind of in a linear fashion. Otherwise, it's very schizophrenic. And then build, you know, have that as one representative, have other medicine wheels. Again, where we're appreciating cultures and not culturally appropriating but more like creating the universal archetypal imprints, which is essentially what Campbell was doing in the hero's journey. He was just talking about one part of the journey. And so when we have that kind of educational model and we have tools for transformation like psychedelic therapies that can really help our egos rest all of their defenses that have been codified to essentially allow for safety and security in a very chaotic, fast-paced world, aggressive world. And many of these that were fortified when we were really just trying to experience safety and love and validation, right. et cetera, 
it takes a while to unravel those and they're very well entrenched. So the medicine work helps those ego defenses become more flexible, pliable. So yes, not there is this degree of neuroplasticity that we can see in the fancy fMRI composites and that look phenomenal. There's also this ego plasticity that happens, mm. hardware and software. So we were talking before about transformational medicine, the blending of hardware and software technologies. Medicine sits in that sweet spot in the middle. Community sits in that sweet spot mm. in the middle. Transformational maps sit in that sweet spot in the middle where each of those is in service to both the hardware and software accelerated optimization and expression of what, who we are in recognition and what we're here to offer because we are in a body temple. And if we're here to do our work for the long haul to the greatest benefit, then that means keeping our body temple strong, right. active, clean, clear, on point and in harmony, ideally with the other monkey suits messing around <laughs> and the planet herself. Yes. That could at any point just shake us off like 100%. a dog does fleas. And so these different maps, when we have an educational process that becomes highly experiential and held within the context of community, now we have the ingredients and the 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 beautifying rubric to solidify the new mental health model. To recognize that what Whitaker said in Anatomy of an Epidemic is highly accurate. You know, long-term, these medications are detrimental. Short-term, if you're using them right, and if somebody's standing on the ledge and they're about to jump, or my sister, when she had a rifle pointed at her heart and then pulled the trigger, at least that's my understanding of how it went. I wasn't there. It's like, fuck, you know, like, let's give you an anesthetic. I agree. Like ketamine. Ketamine is a very good anesthetic. That's why it's being used in mass. But we don't want to use it to the extent that people just stay numb and exactly. quiet. I think that this goes to, if they're starving, give them a fish with the understanding that you have to move towards, you got to teach them how to fish. And that requires a shift, a fundamental shift and a person's engagement with the process. Because it can be really convenient to just expect to be given fish. Like, oh, that was really good. Thank you. Can and, I have another? And that's the shadow of the magic bullet is that it implies non-engagement. Mm -hmm. It implies you don't have to do anything. And it, like it's been weaved into consumerism in this way where it's not working. Mm -hmm. And that... One of the fundamental truths is in order for you to become the oak tree, radical responsibility will mean radical engagement. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's our destiny. You know, that's the soul expression. Our souls want us to be engaged. They want 100%. us to share our dharmas and our callings and not just receive handouts. But the economic disparity where the chosen few hundred families that control 85% of the wealth, is there an in mass orientation to keeping the masses silent, numbed out in front of the boob tube, et cetera. Christian's freaking out in the background. He's doing a good job of being quiet. <laughs> totally. I, even if that was the case, even if there was this like nefarious plan to keep us all dumb and stupid and just, you know, making widgets and punching the consumerism clock, like, okay. I know that I've come 
to be a part of the reconciliation and reformation of that because that's yeah. not a sustainable trajectory. No. Because that by definition, unless it has an, a contributory framework, like we're going to make the world better, not worse. If we're making the world worse, that's not sustainable. The world's just going to shake us off. We've gone through five mass extinctions in the past. This sixth might be man-made. That's not going to last. And it's super fucking irresponsible to say, okay, well, let's just go inhabit Mars. Right. That's like keeping your room just filthy, inviting others to clean it up and saying, oh, yeah, great. I'm going to just, you know, move in next door. And I'm going to fuck that place up. And Jimmy Wheel has a really good thought experiment where it's like, let's say that that idea is completely successful. How many people can we fit on the rockets? Right. Like the Titanic going down. Right. And like how many people, like even if best case scenario, are we just going to give up on Earth? You know? Right. Avatar opening scene, right? He's in just this like decimated landscape. And then he eventually towards the end of the movie communes with home tree or the, the tree of souls and says, you know, got to tell you, if you don't know, Awal, we killed our mother. And everybody you see here, that's their mindset. So that's please help me happen. help you. Right. Help me help you. And that's what happens. And so yeah. you get this universal intervention. You get like, okay, the, 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 the soul of that planet, the soul of Pandora came to the rescue. Is the, what is happening right now? What is the soul of our planet coming to educate us and move us into? So we might actually just be a part of this like grand reconciliation that needs to happen, which means all of the trauma that's happened up to this point is coming into the light. Like everything that's been happening in Canada around their First Nations people and the, the burial grounds of thousands of children being exhumed is just one example of another reconciliation that's needing to happen. What's, what's the relationship in the United States with our government and the First Nations people and the fact that no treaties ever written and agreed upon by the US government were ever held and ever kept. And, and that's just in North America, or you know we haven't even talked about Mexico. And then we can get into Central America, South America, Africa, Asia, Eurasia, Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, Australia. I mean, you know, it's global. Yeah. So this global reconciliation movement's happening. The shadow's coming into the light. And the thing that I've, reckoning and reconciliation, it's almost like reckoning must happen in order for reconciliation to be possible. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that you, when you said your prayer, help me open my heart, the prayer it answered was, all right, you're going to have to feel everything that closed your heart. It's almost like the soul of Western culture at some point, I don't know when it was, but at some point it, it said a prayer and said, help me open my heart. Mm -hmm. And then Gaia was like, I got you, boo. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're in the midst of that. Like, mm -hmm. you have to reckon with everything mm -hmm. to have the reconciliation. Getting current. Bring all... Getting current. I like that. Yeah. yeah. It's such a small phrase and it carries so much holy. Yeah. Right. And so like, okay, for example, we were just talking about medicine work, MDMA psychotherapy that's leading the, the field right now. It is a grand medicine for getting current because mm. it helps the ego drop, right? It's, history is as a couple's therapy tool. 
largely to help us get current. What are all the withholds? What are all the resentments? What are all like the the shit that's in the background that we haven't brought into the center of the circle and paid attention to? So may we continue to do that with one another. May we have enough courage and community and eldership and meaning to go through our currency process, to go through our reckoning with as as much grace and ease as possible. (laughs) I don't know Towards, Western culture put that part of the prayer. Yeah, you know. Maybe. It's 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 so hard to know right. what our souls are in communion with as it relates to grace and ease, but we do know that the the interventions will come as whispers, then they'll come as shouts, and then they'll come as the firemen just busting the door down because that's what our soul's doing is rescuing our egos from decimating our lives, including decimating the planet because our own soul is connected to the soul of the world. Yeah. And so internally, there is this voice that we can just continue to gradually listen to that will guide our way, but it's oftentimes highly inconvenient <laughs> and highly uncomfortable. I love that, yeah. yeah. So maybe the last... Uh, touch point is uh, if we create AI hardware, will souls that are reincarnating occupy that new mm-hmm. type of body? It's a great question. I think there it just makes sense that there would be a critical threshold at which there's enough organic substrate to allow divinity to inhabit and feel um, anchored. Like, for example, when you go through a dieta, which is not just the preparation for something like ayahuasca, the dieta is also described in using that terminology. It's when we go into active communion, opening ceremony, closing ceremony, usually it's days, weeks, maybe months in direct communion with a particular plant teacher. When we're following the dietary protocol, largely in isolation, and we're just in union, in listening, in communion. And that whole process is slowing down our nervous system and our psyches enough that the plants can actually take hold, that Mm. the lessons can take hold. We actually have a resonant field. We think about how active our nervous systems are compared to that snake plant. That's a great point. So if we slow it down, Mm. then there's enough of a resonant field I get the same kind of intuition about AI intelligence. If there's enough organic substrate, if there's enough kind of soul available to inhabit in the physical, then when our souls in that divine expression can can anchor and and the levels of consciousness have enough of an overlap, I think it's possible. And if we continue to propagate more and more of that AI framework and hardware, then at some point there's too much of an energetic mismatch that the software is not able to fully come in and Mm. even inhabit. There are so many tabs, but we only got so much time in a day. Uh, The last question I would like to offer is, I'd like to invite you to imagine that um, you've arrived at the last day of your life. You know it's going to be the last day of your life. You have fulfilled your dharma in this iteration with this monkey suit. 
Um, what will you see when you look back on your life on that last day? How would you like to spend that last day? And then I got one more question after mm. you've answered those two. Mm. Cool question. Never even thought about that. I. Th- how about let me answer it first? How would I like to spend that day? Spend that day with my beloved. I see her and I and a dog on a sailboat, and I've never sailed. Mm. So I think it would be awesome to just have one radically new, fun experience. And I'd have a, a pipe, and I'd you know smoke a little bit of mapacho, a little bit of tobacco, and blow it into the sunset and, and give gratitude. Like, wow, what a privilege to be in a body in this really dynamic time in human history. And all the privileges that I've had and I'm hopeful to be able to reflect on a few things that I was able to contribute positively to the collective. Give gratitude for that. Say some prayers for that. Say some prayers for the ongoing evolution of humanity. And that each of us can can in some way inhabit our dharmas and know that we've contributed regardless of what's happening in the collective because that's largely out of our control. So we don't have a whole lot of control on like the universal rules of the game. We have more control than we think, but that's podcast number two. (laughs) (laughs) But in this current like consciousness construct um, that we played the game as best we could, that we lifted each other up, that yeah, I'm going to want to kick somebody's ass on the soccer field, but I'm going to like bow to you and give you gratitude. If you kick my ass too, like we're just going to sweat it out together and have that like, you know, that, that, rubbing of shoulders and getting, you know, messy in the trenches together. So I would expect that something like that would happen. Um, and, and also to recognize that, like Ram Das said, you know, I'm just about to take off an old pair of shoes, get really curious about what's going to happen on the other side, know that I'm probably not going to, in this form, recognize fully what's happening on the other side. There's going to be a different consciousness process occurring and maybe at that point too there's there is even more availability for us to consciously transition Mm. across the veils and into the next inhabitation uh and see what my my soul cooks up for me my desire is to continuously stay in the in the curious mind and so by then if i uh i'm blessed with the opportunity to just say okay what's next how does it go from here? You're really super excited in my little old age waddle <laughs> <laughs> to meet that moment. And the last question is that if you could leave a single sentiment or message on a piece of paper that the children of your community would get to read after you pass and you write it right before you go to sleep that you know will be your last or, you know, uh, what would you write? Mm. I think I'd probably keep it pretty simple. Um, stay curious, give back, make it fun. Dr. Dan, thank you for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Eric. Totally good to be here, man. I suspect we'll probably have another conversation. I hope so. (laughs) 